The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, we do provide some free stuff uh, on our Internet uh, sites. Uh, miningstocks.com is my primary site, and you can go there to get special offers to obtain uh, the first-time trial offers for all of the newsletters that I just mentioned. And you can go to jayswatchlist.com uh, to learn about some of the companies that I have on my radar screen, as well as webeatthestreet.com. Um, and I will also be bringing to your attention companies that I have been interviewing by uh, video, those will be with you and will be posted sometime in the near future. I like to talk to companies on this radio show to uh, not only to tell uh, you, the listeners, about promising ideas out there, but also to uh, it's a way for me to be introduced to companies as well. There's just literally oh a couple of thousand junior mining companies out there in the universe. There's enormous numbers of companies out there. How do you sift through and find the best ones? That's the big challenge. I think we have some real winners uh, definitely uh, that have been on this show, and some of our sponsors are really, really very interesting companies. Uh, before I forget, let me just thank our sponsors for the first hour of this uh, of this weekly show. It's Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Solidon Gold Corp, 
Dasha Capital, who, by the way, we will be talking to a little later today. Richfield Ventures, also in the second hour, we'll be talking to today. Golden Minerals, Clifton Stars, Silvercrest Mines, Duncan Park Holdings, and Swiss American Corporation. Well, I also want to thank each of you for listening to this show because we are the number one show by a pretty good margin on the Voice America Business Network, a business channel, I should say. And so it's thanks to you. Our numbers just keep on growing. And I don't take credit for that. I think the reason is because we have some fantastic uh, guests on this show, and we're going to have a very interesting fellow. We're just sort of departing from the normal from the normal content of this show a little more than, than usual, uh, we're going to have Professor William Hathaway. He's a former Special Forces soldier turned peace activist. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit about uh, how war, the American war machine, uh, impacts the financial status of, of our country. And, of course, that does touch, uh, touch our lives in a very real way. But Professor Hathaway will also talk about uh, the real human cost uh, in terms of war and what that means to our society. Um, we're going to, before we go to Professor Hathaway, we are going to be uh, talking also to Frank Callahan. He's the president and CEO of a new gold producer uh, British in British Columbia. It's Barkerville Gold, gold Mines, which I mentioned, uh, I forgot to tell you, a minute ago. They are going to be with me in just a minute. That is, Frank will be. They did pour their first gold bar now. So they do seem to be now up and running, not only mining the ore, but actually processing the ore through the mill and getting some gold production now. So we're going to talk to Frank and, and see if he's still online to produce those 50,000 ounces or so and at what cost. And we want to keep track of the economics because that's, in the end, what this all boils down to. Uh, share price earning money in this, in this sector is about... Uh, obviously about rising earnings relative to price, and we're always looking for opportunities uh, in this sector, which I believe, as I've said many times recently, that we are in the bull market of a lifetime. Gold mining, I think, is by far the greatest bull market that I will ever see in my lifetime, and I'm 63 years old. Uh, I saw the last one in the 70s. This one is going to be far greater than anything we saw in the 70s already is, but we're just starting to see companies like Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, which I mentioned, companies on our list that are now evolving uh, into production. Um, so later in the afternoon, as I mentioned, well, we'll finish the second, um, we'll start the second hour of the show uh, finishing our conversation with Professor Hathaway. Then we're going to also talk to uh, Dasha Capital um, and, um, um, and um, the other company. I'm just losing my train of thought here. We're going to be speaking to Richfield Ventures, sorry. Uh, and that is a company that has really been hot, done extremely well in my newsletter, uh, our selection. It's been a sponsor, and uh, everybody that bought Richfield Ventures a few weeks ago when we first talked to them are smiling right now, at least with respect to that, to that outcome. Well, before we go to Frank Callahan, though, I do have Chen Lin with me, and I just want to check in with Chen a little bit uh, to see what his ideas are on the gold, uh, gold markets and otherwise. I might just mention before I say hello to Chen that uh, my assistant, Claudio Bossi, brought to my attention just slightly before we went on the air that gold had spiked up some 15 bucks or so towards the end of the day. And it reminded me a lot of our conversation last week with Adrian Douglas, in which Adrian talked about the, uh, the possibility that the manipulators of the gold markets, the five banks that sit in the uh, London uh, fix, uh, are losing control. And it's without any doubt, I think Adrian points out, 
that the gold market has been manipulated by these insiders, by these people who, uh, who are the, the bankers and, and probably those that are fairly close to the ruling elite, the, the real power behind the throne. So we saw, uh, uh, we saw today a, a spike up in the gold price. Keep in mind that the ruling elite wants to see the gold price subdued. They want to pe- keep people conned into owning paper. They want you to be confident in the con game that Wall Street and Washington is running. And they want you to, to accept those pieces of paper that they create out of thin air, essentially. Mostly it's digital money. It's not even paper. They want you to accept that number in the bank account as if it's really, really worth something. And we're finding out more and more that the emperor is wearing no clothes. The dollar is, and other paper currencies are worth less and less. And that's why the gold price is rising so much. It's not because gold is rising in value. It's because the paper is losing value. Anyway, with that said, I just want to welcome Chen Lin uh, to see what he's thinking today after this $15 pop in the gold price. Welcome, Chen. Hi, Jay. Thanks. Good to have you here again. Uh, I don't know if you were aware that we saw a real pop in the gold price late in the day. What do you think is going on? Yeah, the Fed has spoken, and they 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 chose to uh, print more money. They prepared. They mentioned today in the statement they prepared to print more money as much as they can to to prop up this uh, economy, the deflation that they fear of. They they have no, con- you know, consideration for future inflation, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe they- is imminent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the gold they're going wild. Actually, you see the gold stock action was very weak today uh-huh. going into this. So there's a lot of uh, weak hands selling into, you know, taking profit to make a good profit in a few weeks, past few weeks, they're selling. And then this huge turnaround in gold, it's like turn around the gold stock market. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. Yeah, you, you, you see the, there's many stocks that just turn around big time. Is that right, Chen? Could you, uh, a couple of them that have done especially well today, do you have any, any that you'd like to mention? Oh, for gold stock, uh, yeah. not, not particular, just yeah. down well, but just in general. You can see mm-hmm. all the stock, you know, on my recommendation list. A lot of stock drop like uh, 5, 6, 7 percent. Some drop 10 percent and then turn turn around, right? Mm-hmm. So and one, one example I can give you is uh, uh, Golden Mineral. Golden Mineral has been a hot performer since uh, you did the interview with mm-hmm. the management uh, a week ago. It dropped as much as over 10 percent, and now it's... Uh, only down about five percent, so it's it's, a, it's cut itself, you know, the loss in half. But yeah. the stock has been stellar performer. It's already up more than fifty-six. I think more than sixty percent since your interview. Since my interview, yeah, that that worked out pretty well. We hope some of our listeners bought that sh- those shares. Uh, certainly has worked out well. Chen, would you still say that Golden Minerals is one of your top five picks? Let's say. Yeah, it's still one of my top top holdings. Yeah, I, I would say um, I'm very bullish on this stock, and uh, with the company, I think they will continue to explore. They haven't found the boundary yet, and uh, this is, mm-hmm. and uh, they also going to have other drilling results coming in Mexico. Actually, that's between the Goldcore and Penasquito Mine, mm-hmm. and uh, the other company they just acquired. So, this company owns a lot of assets, and when gold go up, silver goes up, their assets marginal price, the asset value goes up dramatically. So it's mm-hmm. very, very highly leveraged to gold and silver price. Mm-hmm. And you also like, I think your top pick is probably still Oceana Gold? Yes, I mean, I'm still very bullish on Oceana. They just have a presentation at Denver, so they did it very well. And, uh, you know, I welcome people to go to the, uh, to listen to a replay of the presentation. Right. Anything else besides gold that you're hot on these days, Chen? 
Well, I'm, I'm a, I have a, you know, I have a, if I go, I have energy, which I, I have, you know, I have a very bullish on many stock. I have a pop. Pop stock did very, very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a CFX, uh, that's, um, uh, income trust that's just raised their dividend again. I think a third or fourth time this year. Right now it's over 20% dividend. Let's just tell you how, you know, how profitable the pop producers are. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a robust demand from China and for, Many many years to come. So so you see the stock is right now up eight percent after they raise the dividend again. So, mm-hmm. so the it's three three dollar dividend a year. Right now it's trading below fifteen dollars. So you calculate yourself. What three dollar dividend on fifteen dollar share price? Exactly. So it's over twenty percent. Wow, not too shabby, folks. If you need some income, I. Um, well, anyway, Chen, that's that's very interesting. You know, we're going to be talking in just a couple of minutes to Frank Callahan of Barkerville Gold. What do you think uh, about, you know, Frank's just putting that company's uh, project into production, their British Columbia project, and uh, what are your thoughts about junior mining companies in general? You, you like the evolving producers uh, more than the pure exploration plays, I believe, Chen. Yes, uh, I, I like companies that uh, don't need to keep coming back to the market to access capital. The capital has been very difficult. Each time companies do a placement, the yeah. stock has got whack. So, uh, so I generally like, you know, like Oceana type of stuff that mm-hmm. they just on their own destiny. They just uh, continue to evolve from here. Yeah. That, that's my preference. But, you know, if there's extremely undervalued stock, uh, you know, do need access to capital, and I will still own it, like a uh, golden mineral, you know. Yeah. Example. Okay, uh, Chen, unfortunately, we gotta, we're coming up on the commercial break here. I want you to stick around, though, if you don't mind, with Frank Callahan, and maybe you'll have a question or two for Frank and Barkerville Gold. Will you stay with us? Sure. Okay, great. Well, folks, don't go away. As I just mentioned, Frank Callahan of Barkerville Gold will be with us, and we'll, he'll be telling us about the progress that company is making up in British Columbia. Don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Finross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. 
Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by dasha capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk rare earth elements are used in many industries from aerospace and automotive to high tech and green tech dasha capital is listed on the tsx.v in toronto under the symbol dac and on the otcqx in the u.s under symbol dchaf please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more that's d-a-c-h-a-capital.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network to turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, as I've been proclaiming, I think this is the buying opportunity of a lifetime for junior gold mining shares. And I I really believe that, and you can take that from a from an older guy who was through the uh, the previous bull market in the 1970s. I was a young fellow then, and I remember how exciting that was. But in my view, the uh, the big picture for gold mining has never been better, and probably will never be better in my lifetime. And I think this is a bull market that's going to last another five, ten, fifteen years even, because of the underlying fundamentals. Paper money is self-destructing. So the people who are really producing real money the honest-to-goodness money that people have cherished and have demanded over centuries are the gold mining companies. And the profit margins are looking very good because, as I've been saying so often, the price of gold relative to uh, other commodities and input costs that go into producing this stuff has been going, the price of gold has been going up relative to those costs, hence improved margins. So I'm very delighted to have once again Frank Callahan. He's the president and CEO of Barkerville Gold with us, and Barkerville Gold, thankfully, is a sponsor of this show, and we thank you for that, Frank, and we're really glad to have you back with us again. 
Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. I'm actually phoning from Denver at Down at the Gold Show in Denver, Colorado. Yes, indeed. And you're a company now that fits into that sort of upscale crowd. Uh, you know, I've seen you for many years at some of the more junior gold mining uh, events, you know, that uh, Joe Martin's Cambridge House and the other places like that, uh, where they're mostly exploration companies. But the Denver Gold Show is a show where you've got producers and companies that are sort of actually making it happen now. They're not just dreaming of it and putting holes in the ground and thinking maybe one day they'll find and develop a mine. So you're doing it now, Frank. You have production. You've poured, you told me, your third bar now. Um, that must feel pretty good. Actually, we're pouring the third one. The third one's on this coming Thursday. I'm actually uh, I'm in Denver, but I'll be back there tomorrow afternoon in Vancouver and then up to the mine on Thursday morning. Okay, and you're pouring about 500 ounces a week right now. That's uh, so. If we're going with that, and you do that every week, we got fifty-two thousand ounces. Is that the target? Sort of. That's the target. Fifty thousand ounces or so. Give our listeners a sense again of the overall cost. I know I ask you this every time, but I think it's important for people to put this in perspective. You're going to produce fifty, fifty-two thousand ounces of gold. What is the cash cost, more or less, Frank, within a certain range? of the cost per ounce. So it's, cost it's, per ounce. It's, it's more, you know, based on the pre-feasibility, it's more than $500 an ounce. We don't actually have the actual numbers yet. I should have yeah. them probably by the end of the month, mm-hmm. see what the first, uh, what the actual cost is going to be as opposed to what the pre-feasibility suggested is. Sure. But uh, it's going to be, it's more than $500 an ounce, should be less than six. Okay. So but that puts it into perspective. I mean, we're looking at a gold price that's knocking on the door of $1,300. It's well over $1,200 now. So that's uh, you know that's a pretty good profit margin. It certainly is. It, it it really is. And things are going really well at the QR mine right now. And and uh, more importantly, we're actually uh, we're in the permitting process to actually start permitting Bonanza Ledge, and we've submitted our application for it. And that should add uh, about another. Um, that's part of the fifty thousand ounces a year we intend to produce. So okay. And is that right next door, Frank? Is that it's real actually, close? It's, a, it's uh, sixty miles away, door to door. Okay. Uh, 110 kilometers, and um, the grade is quite high. It's, it's 10 gram material. It's open pit mining, and uh, we just finished our last drill hole on it a few days ago. We got some assays back uh, yesterday evening. They should be publishing those in the near future, um, and uh, that will be part of the whole um, 50,000 ounce year production. So you're getting 10 grams per ton with an open pit, and I would just tell listeners that may not be familiar with with the mining industry, the gold mining industry, uh, that that is a very high grade uh, for an open pit mine. Frank, how much of that sort of high grade ore from open pit do you have there from that deposit? Well, initially from the the first drilling that we've done, and this is also in a pre-feasibility study, is that it's uh, it's just light of 100,000 ounces. Mind you, that, that pre-feasibility study was done last year. We've done a number of more holes since then. Mm-hmm. We think that those numbers are going to increase a little bit. Um, but it's our plan to actually take about 25,000 ounces a year from that deposit. Oh, well, that's some grade, I must say, for an open pit. Do you, is there some potential there for underground? Well, uh, there is as well, and we're actually starting to drill tomorrow on Cow Mountain. That will actually be another open pit deposit. Uh, it currently has a resource right now of just a little bit more than 600,000 ounces. Uh, we hope to take that, uh, it's our ambition to take that well over a million ounces. Uh, we think we can do that prior to 43101 coming into play. It was a resource that was about 11 million tons of four-gram material, um, which gave it about a million ounces a ton. But some of the holes were drilled in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. Under the new guidelines, you have to re-drill those holes, and we're doing that now. Mm-hmm. 
What is your uh, what is your resource reserve and resource number? If you've got a reserve number now, Frank, and, and what are those numbers? I, I think we're just. I don't hold me to this, but I think we're just light of eight hundred thousand uh, from. Mm-hmm. And this is from last year's numbers. I expect that that should increase. Our objective was to take that over a million ounces by the end mm-hmm. of this calendar year. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's forty three one hundred one compliant. That's correct. Right, uh, Chen. Do you have a question for Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. Uh, How you doing? Good to hear from you again. Good. How are you? I heard you have the only mill in the area, and then you're going to expand to some customer milling. That's correct. We, the the government is really quite in favor of us doing toll milling as as the the environmental footprint on on putting a number of mills up in an area where one mill can service uh, a, a larger area. So we've uh, we've agreed with government, and and we want to actually be a, a, a custom mill. So the the mill size. Uh, that we have there right now is a 900 ton a day facility. It could probably go up to 11 or 1200 tons. We're currently only uh, trying to run at about 600 tons. So what we could do is we could actually increase our tonnage through the input through the mill and then do custom milling at the same time, stockpile on site and do custom milling. Um, Frank, how profitable can that be? I mean, do you, how do you, you charge a certain amount per ton that you process, or how does that work? That's correct. So what you do, so it's over and above our cost, and then we, we put in a, a profit margin on top of it and then add on for wear and tear. Right. And your, uh, your capacity there is 900 tons per day, you said? That's correct. And you're going to be feeding about 600 tons a day of your own material through there? Yeah, our business plan sort of close shows us doing 600 tons a day from now till the 1st of, of uh, 2011. Then for a, about a three- or four-month period, we'll be running at about, uh, 11, about somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,200 tons a day, and that's because the ore that's being processed from Bonanza Ledge uh, requires only about a third of the, of the t- holding time in the tanks, so we can actually increase it, and then we'll, that ore will be all processed, and then we'll, we will have been stockpiling stuff at the QR facility. That's an underground facility that we're mining right now, and uh, that will let us stockpile, and then we can sort of run it at a, at a higher rate again. The, the, the mill's capable of doing 900 and, and higher, depending on what your leach time is. The challenge is actually keeping it full and going all the time. Is mills are quite a hungry little animal, and... And you got to keep them full, so it's yeah. You got to keep them full, them full for efficiency, right? Yes, uh, Frank. I think the last time we talked, your sense was that you know you felt, and I guess every CEO feels this way about their own shares that their their share price is undervalued. But my sense is that if you can execute, if you can produce gold and do it efficiently, the markets will fully fully value your shares. Do you see your shares still somewhat undervalued relative to other companies that are, say, producing 50,000 ounces of gold a year or so? Oh, certainly. We, if you look at our, at our competition, just because the company's it's a new name and, and no, not many people know about it, right. we're currently trading with somewhere light of a $60 million market cap. The facility, the QR facility alone is worth in excess of $70 million. Mm-hmm. Forget all the ounces of gold that the company has that are compliant ounces. Mm-hmm. So we're you know, we should be, if we look at our, our peer group, we should be in the uh, 150 to $200 million market cap, I'm going to suggest. Mm-hmm. So that should give our, our listeners at least uh, a sense of what the upside should be. And, and let me just say that that's based on what you have now. You have an enormous amount of exploration potential. Could you just tell our, take a minute or so to tell our listeners about the potential? You've had a lot of mom-and-pop mines uh, up there in, your, in the claims areas that you hold, I believe. But just give our listeners a sense of the scope, the magnitude of your exploration potential there. Sure. Well, over the last 15 years, 15 uh, year field seasons that we've spent on the property, we've amassed a property that is uh, – 
just light of 30 miles long or, or 60 kilometers and uh, probably about uh, five to uh, five miles or so wide. Um, in it, there's, there's been seven former producing mines on it, uh, one owned by Newmont, run by Newmont Mining Corporation, closed in the 60s. Um, so the camp itself is, is really prolific. It's, it's historic production is just light of 4 million ounces. That's recorded production. Uh, 1.2 million ounces of that was load. Uh, I'm going to suggest 2.6 of that was actually uh, placer mining. The, the significance of what the company has found is we found gold in a rock formation that had not been recognized as being gold-bearing before. Ah. So we've got the whole belt to look at, and we're just, just, we haven't even started really looking at it yet because we've been focused on getting the Bonanza Ledge portion of it permitted, which is in the throws right now, and, um, and actually looking at acquiring a second mill to, that will carry on to. The company anticipates being, we'd like to be in excess of 100,000 ounce a year producer by 2012. Mm-hmm. So we have another area that we've, we're looking at purchasing a mill and, um, and putting it right at the foot of Cow Mountain and actually putting that into production again by 2012. So we've got lots of room to go and look, and, um, and that's really going to be the big exciting part that's really going to carry the, carry the day is, is finding more gold, and, and we expect to be able to do that. Well, Frank, we only have a few seconds left, and I know one thing that's always on, on Chen's mind, so I'm going to ask the question instead of giving Chen a chance to do it. Do you think you can grow this company organically, that is, from cash flow, or do you have to go out and issue more shares? You, I might mention, by the way, and I don't think I did, that you only have 58 million shares out, which isn't that many for a company that's in production. No, we actually, right now, we're good. We don't need any money. We're, we're, uh, we're cashed up, and the company's, we're, we're producing gold on a weekly basis, so um, we don't need to, uh, to go back to actually raise any more funds. That's, that's extremely important invest, uh, for investors and listeners to, to realize that, and I know that must uh, bring a smile to Chen Lin's face. Chen, good to have you both. Thanks, Frank, for being with me again. We're Thank out you. of time. We're going to go to our special guest this week, Professor William Hathaway. So thanks again, Frank, for being with us. Chen, thanks for being with me, and look to talk to you next week. Thank you both very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, folks, don't go away. We do have Professor William Hathaway joining us in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Very interesting man with some very, very important things to tell us about American society and what we're doing to people overseas with our military machinery. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Professor Hathaway. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. 
Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. CA for further information. Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project, and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I'm really delighted to have Professor William Hathaway with us today, and he's a bit unusual in the sense that he's not as much focused on the financial matters as most of our guests are, but I think what he is focused on is every bit as important, if not more so, than the financial. However, before we get to Professor Hathaway, I'd like to just talk a little bit about about the connection I see between uh, our military and our war efforts and money, the monetary system. You know, we talk all the time about gold on this show. I became a gold bug really back in the, in the 1960s. I had a professor, uh, Peyton Yoder, at a small Mennonite college in Kansas called Heston College, a junior college at that time. And Professor Yoder was absolutely convinced there was a correlation between the debasing of a currency and its morality and uh, on the one, uh, uh, the debasing of a currency on the one hand and the morality and work ethic on the other. And I thought that was a very interesting idea. So as a young man in 1968, uh, I, I stopped uh, 
I, I left after two years of college. I did an alternative to military service because I was brought up as a Mennonite and was not uh, Mennonites. Uh, Mennonite young men at that time just basically, if they if they believed uh, they should not go to war, they were given a pass, and you could work in a hospital to help people in hospitals or do various kinds of things like that. So that's what I did, and I watched what was going on in the late 1960s with. Uh, with the uh, with the Vietnam War, with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs, and you know neither of those presidents. Funny thing, they didn't want to tell the American people they're going to have to pay for the war and pay for socialism. They just thought uh, they would just issue debt. And there was one very smart um, leader of a country called France, Charles de Gaulle, who saw what was going on and he said, "Wait a minute, I don't want these increasingly worthless pieces of paper. I have the right under Bretton Woods to take thirty-five dollars." Uh, give you $35, you're going to give me an ounce of gold back. So that's what he did. As, as, as the United States started printing more and more money to pay for Vietnam and, and the other programs. Well, we had a run on the gold, uh, on the Americans, on America's gold supply. And Nixon realized that if that continued, we'd lose confidence around the world. So the United States, being the bully that we are, being the, the major superpower, we just said, what the heck with you, De Gaulle? We're not going to give you your gold. We are the United States of America. We're the victors of World War II. We have the power and just go away. And so Nixon closed the gold window. Now, if you go back and look at what happened to military spending, all kinds of spending, credit cards, debt of every sort of level in society, it exploded after Nixon closed the gold window in 1971. Do I believe that Peyton Reuter was right? You bet I do, more than ever. And I've seen it happen. We could not have financed a military machinery that we have now in some 140 countries, I believe. I'll ask Professor Hathaway in a second about that. But we have been able to finance this war machinery because we issue debt. And so far, the rest of the countries around the world, not, not all of them, but China and some of the others, have been buying our debt. But they're increasingly uh, showing reluctance to continue doing that. So I think that uh, this show is very much related to uh, the things we're going to talk about with Professor Hathaway. I, I believe that we need to go back to an honest monetary system. We need to tell the American people uh, that they are paying for things. And we paid in spades. The American people had a big def inflationary uh, episode in the 70s. So in the end, we all paid anyway. We all paid for the Vietnam War in one way or another. The only thing is people didn't make the connection between the cause and effect. Well, with that said, I want to welcome Professor Hathaway to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. And then, Jay, they're not making the connection now between the drastically lowering standard of living and, and this enormous expenditures for the war. They, they, some of the media is convinced that these are two entirely different issues. <laughs> uh, yeah, good point. Um, I think you're absolutely right about that because we are siphoning off an enormous amount of, of uh, resources, are we not, for the war. For wars, I should say, because we seem to be fighting wars or we have a presence. How many countries do we have a presence in? Do you have a, an idea? Way too many. Like, there's some, yeah, close to 100, yeah, with, with bases and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and I was thinking that Ron Paul has talked about 140 or something like that. But anyway, we're all over the world, the basically. The wages everywhere. are stagnating. Well, not just stagnating, their wages are in many cases declining. It's like a lot of young workers now are making less the money than their fathers did in the same job. Oh, for in, sure. In real dollars. I mean, I mean you know, in, in actual, not just inflation, but, but the, the actual paycheck is, is, is less than its dad's made. Uh, yeah. You know, I would like to, I didn't give you a proper introduction, really, um, just to, to let people know that, uh, that you were in the uh, Special Forces, you were a soldier, uh, and you were in the Vietnam War, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, 
And prior to that, you had gone to Columbia, you had gotten a degree, or you had at least started your educational I process in Columbia and, and became a journalist. to do the military thing and then went back. And, and then went back after, yeah. yeah. And then you, you graduated, did you graduate from Columbia? I actually graduated, this was late 60s, and graduated was considered sort of a reactionary thing to do. Yeah, so it I, was. I, went, days, I graduated right. several yeah. years later from the University of, of, uh, of Washington and uh-huh. went to okay. graduate school there in, in Seattle. Okay, and you were really into journalism, weren't you? And I think also perhaps uh, Eastern religions to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, it's always appealed to me, uh, communicating those ideas. Okay, and I want to get into the connection of, of uh, you know, some of those views and, and how you've come to become uh, a pacifist or a person that's working for peace rather than, uh, rather than a warrior, which you one time one time were. How, do you, how did you make the change? How did you switch from one to the other? Because I think it's very difficult for people, for men to do that, isn't it? Yeah, particularly for men. It was, uh, it was a slow transition. It started actually in, in basic training when I, when I realized at some, some primordial level what was going on. Uh, it's, it's an enorm- it has a lot to do with gender, like so many things do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the military is the most patriarchal institution in, in our culture. Uh, and it creates soldiers by turning them into the, the lowliest creature under patriarchy, women. <laughs> it turns them in, it takes away their, their masculinity and their sense of personal power, strips that away, and they're made to do the lowliest work that in, under patriarchy is thought of as women's work. Mm-hmm. They do all the cleaning and become obsessed with their appearance. Uh, and taking orders from these more powerful older men. Uh-huh. And, and, and they're lined up in sort of a bizarre kind of, of a quasi-homosexual uh, relationship. It's not actually overtly homosexual, but the undertones are there. Mm-hmm. Of, of all these men, all these young men lining up, and the older, powerful sergeants coming along and inspecting them, looking, at, looking very closely at their clothes and how they wear their hair and if they're shaved right and everything, and making all sorts of critical comments about them. It really mirrors the way women are treated under patriarchy. Um, very um, interesting. So is it sort of an emasculating experience for men then? Very emasculating, and, and the rage that engendered, engenders in them, in these young guys, uh, is then given an outlet. You, can, you can't rebel against, you can't take your rage out against the, the military, but you can take it out against the enemy. I see. You can release it at the enemy. Uh, and also, if you accept your place there at the lowest level, in, in, in the patriarchal hierarchy, you can move up. And eventually, yeah. you play by the rules, and you can then do it to other people. <laughs> right. So uh, it's sort of a sadomasochism almost. It's a, or, oh, or it whatever. is. It's so sick. Well, it's very interesting now. I mean, these are your conclusions. Have there been other psychologists that have done work on this sort of thing? Yeah, it's fairly, yeah, it's fairly standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of work been done on uh, And uh, from the psychological level in this emasculated state that the phallus is symbolically taken away from these guys mm-hmm. and replaced with a weapon. Sure. And, and that instead of, instead of sex being something, love, sexuality could be loving and brings you close to other people and, and spreads joy and, and creates new people. Mm-hmm. Instead of that, sexuality becomes a tool of death for, for yeah. destroying life. And, and very clear connections are made between the weapon, your rifle, and, and, and your sexuality. It it's becomes your, your the replacement for the sexuality that's actually been, been the healthy sexuality has been that's been robbed from you by wow. this by yeah. this violent indoctrination. Mm-hmm. So it does certainly make a really certain sick. amount of sense. 
Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I have never, you know, I had never been uh, in military service, as I mentioned in uh, the introduction. I was, uh, you know, brought up as a Mennonite and went away, uh, worked in a hospital in Morristown, New Jersey during those years, and then went to college and all that. But uh, it, it, um, uh, it's, it is a, an experience. I mean, I did, uh, we played sports and we're in, uh, you know, football teams and uh, had coaches that were like drill sergeants. And so I have a sense of what you're talking about. But when did you enter combat? You you actually entered. Um, you were in combat in, in Vietnam, were you not? And and when did yeah, that take place? I was in the uh, Special Forces A team up in the Central Highlands of of, of the country. Okay. The mountain yards there, and uh, uh, trying to uh, extend the, uh, the the empire, trying to trying to uh, make sure that this country uh, stayed within our uh, our. Our grip of power. <laughs> well, of course, that isn't the way it was presented to Americans. It was about, uh, it was about uh, freedom. It was about, you know, we used words like peace. It was about stopping the communists from, you know, from uh, the dominoes. Uh, was you know the idea that if one goes, the next will go, and the next will go, and the next will go, and we got to stop them. I mean, that was the propaganda that we were given those days, right? Same arguments now. Basically, yeah. the same arguments now. We got to stop the terrorists now, or there, or they'll be, you know. You'll be you'll be over here and, and right. just. Uh, well, it never so seems yeah. to dawn on the powers that be that, as Ron Paul has pointed out, that they're over here because we were first over there in many cases, perhaps. You know, when they came on 9/11. Yeah. But in any event, um, so you were really in, in every country that, that we that where we have problems with terrorism now. U.S. first was there doing terrible things. I mean, the history of what this country did to Iran alone is enough to to, to justify. Uh, we think that they're taking the hostages, you know, taking the embassy hostages was a vicious act. But what we did to that country was nothing compared to, uh, you know, what they, that was nothing compared to what we did to, to Iran. It's yeah, could you doing. go into that a little bit? Because we've had uh, John Perkins on this show uh, in the past, and John has talked about, you know, the Iranian uh, model that, that provided to be the new model for empires uh, after World War II, in which case, uh, you know, Mossadegh was overthrown by our CIA, essentially yeah. destabilized by Kermit Roosevelt, who was a great-grandson, of, I think, of Teddy. Uh, is that what you had in mind, or did you have something else in mind? Yeah, no, that, that's it exactly. And it's, the Mossadegh government was doing exactly the kind of things that we... Uh, that we proclaimed that we wanted to do there. Right. It was, it was a progressive, more secular type of government. Women had rights, uh, and they were moving towards uh, good health care structures and everything. But he was also going to nationalize the oil. He was going to take it away from the from, from the uh, the British and the Americans. This, this oil company they had that dominated it. He was going to nationalize it, pay them pay them the legitimate value of their stock. Nationalization is illegal if you you pay the people what what yeah you buy the you buy the stock from them and you own the company then right but yeah and I think that uh, the company you're talking about is none other than BP British Petroleum really that was it okay that, that's, that's what it became yeah. according yeah. to Perkins it was BP British okay. Petroleum of yeah. course yeah. we know what British Petroleum has done just done <laughs> to us here in the in the Gulf and in, in the United States. Um, well, anyway, so uh, the special forces uh, for somebody like me and other listeners may not be familiar. Special forces, what's what's special about them? What do they do? They're, it's sort of sort of the tough assignments of the military. Yeah, it's not nearly as special as they want us to believe, though. <laughs> uh-huh. It's not. I mean, their training is not nearly as intense as as people want to believe, and, and the the level of skills aren't as high. Uh, it's 
it's more the, the image doesn't quite match the reality. Okay, well you would know because you were there. But in any event, you we you were talking about a minute ago the dynamics, the psychological dynamics that make it you know the substitution of sexuality for killing uh, for young men in the military. Um, but nonetheless, it still takes a certain amount of training, does it not? I mean, is that part of the demeaning aspect yeah. of, of beating the hell out of these kids and making them feel like they're worthless? Uh, is that the indoctrination? Is that the process? Uh, or, is there, or is there more to it? Do you have to actually, you know, cerebrally, you have to learn to kill and, and feel it's okay to do it? Because it seems to me that that's not a natural thing for most people. Yeah, it's, it's not. And the, that was one of the the reasons that automatic weapons were developed, because it was found out during the Korean War that most American soldiers didn't actually fire, aim and fire their weapons at another person. Back then it was single. You had to pull the trigger each time you wanted to send a bullet. Uh, it was you had to aim at the person mm-hmm. and, and more have them in your sights and pull the trigger and shoot him. And most soldiers didn't just didn't do that. And so they came up with the concept of the automatic weapons where you don't aim at anybody, you just spray. Oh, interesting. It, it depersonalizes it. So you just hold the trigger down and it sprays out a bunch of bullets, uh, and, uh, and people are willing to do that. And they, train, they changed the training so that from the beginning they were firing at what looked like people. The, pop, the targets became to look like people rather than just before they had just regular round bullseye targets that you were shooting at. Mm-hmm. But they changed that to look like people so, so they become more accustomed to, to sh- shooting at the shapes of human beings. Okay, how did you then, uh, uh, that's very interesting, I mean, the fact that you could depersonalize it with an automatic weapon, whereas otherwise you'd have to shoot for their eyes and, and you'd you know, have a sense that you were really taking somebody's life away, and so de- yeah. depersonalize it, the, uh, that's very, I wasn't aware of that at all, that's very now interesting. Now it's even more depersonalized with the, with the drones and, and the high-altitude right. bombing and everything. Right. Uh, so you take it away from the consciousness of, of human beings, and uh, it's, uh, it, uh, it is not a good thing. I, I, you know, as a person who comes from a pacifistic background, it's, it makes me cringe. But uh, you, though, at some point in time, when was it then that you decided that this was not for you, that this was not a good thing to be a part of this killing machine? It was a gradual change, uh, and uh, I guess when when I realized that, that the U.S. hadn't really, that they'd only learned tactical lessons from Vietnam. They didn't learn any moral lessons. The government just analyzed the, the failure there and, and tried to do it better next time. And, 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 they, and they learned certain things, and now they're trying to apply those things again uh, mm-hmm. to dominate another part of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what really did it. And uh, I wrote the book to, to sort of... Uh, uh, to convince people not to give up on the... On the on their efforts to change the country, that there are things we can do because I became involved in a, in a couple of groups of, of peace activists who were taking a new, a new approach. They had, pretty, especially since Obama has morphed into a war president, these people have given up on, uh, on trying to end the war mm-hmm. uh, through, through conventional ways of demonstrations and elections. Clearly, mm-hmm. elections didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and are now, had, a lot of them have decided that the only way to end the war is to bring the whole system down. <laughs> and, well, you know, that's interesting because, again, I see a parallel between that and the financial sector. Honestly, I believe uh-huh. that, that uh-huh. things will not be fixed until, until, they, until they break down, unfortunately. But uh, how do you account for this? Um, how do you account for Obama's, uh, you know, Obama, the Obama disappointment for people that wanted to see less activity overseas by the U.S. military? 
I think the only people that get to move up high enough in the Democratic Party to have a chance for, for national office have been to, are totally approved their loyalty to the corporate state mm-hmm. and are really just uh, its servants and, and they're the, they're the spokespeople for the corporations. Uh, you get a slightly different different aura about the Republicans and Democrats. A different they appeal to different aspects of the corporate state and, yeah. and those aspects often conflict. Certainly, no peaceful, no peaceful relationships there with, within that aspect of the economy, um, and but they have to, they have to prove their loyalty before they'll ever get uh, before they'll ever get the support. It's not like they, the Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's just a myth. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah, you have to sell yourself to the, to the corporations first, and then you get sponsored. Yeah, and if you don't, you're not going to uh, last very long in office one way or another, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. If, yeah. if there are major threats to the system, as, as I think Ron Paul is, uh, I don't know how much you know uh, uh, Dr. Paul, Congressman Paul, but his anti-war message is certainly not very welcome in his own Republican Party, that's for sure. He's a brave, visionary man, isn't he? He is, and he's yeah. a very brave man, and he's a very honest man who's been able to go back to his people, and he and he votes his conscience even when it's against his district at times, but they keep returning him because he explains to them why. And he's very much a constitutionalist, takes the Constitution literally, and you know one of the things that our Constitution says is that the Congress is supposed to declare war. Well, we just go to war. We don't declare it anymore, do we? No, it's called, yeah, it's just, it's not called that. It's, just called, it's not called a war. It's, no, huh? it's something else. Um, the, you, you, the people that I've been profiling here are, uh, yeah, they've become domestic insurgents. They've they've gone. They, their their disappointment has turned to despair now, and they're they're determined to bring it down. They're, they're using sedition, subversion, and sabotage. To, to, they're destroying computer systems, helping soldiers to desert, trashing recruiting offices, and burning military equipment. Sabotaging defense contractors. Uh, and really this sort of thing is going on now. They're defying the Patriot Act, and, and they're they're working underground in secret cells to undermine the U.S. military empire. Wow! The book takes us into their lives. That's it. Profiles them and and, and shows what they're doing. Now that's uh, the book you're we're talking about. Your latest book. It's called Radical Peace: People Refusing War. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. And there's and before there's I forget, a guy in it who's, who's burned. About a dozen military vehicles, jeeps, and two and a half trucks, and, and one airplane, Air National Guard plane, uh, and uh, he says his his work isn't violent because he's destroying the tools of violence. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's only because our culture worships property that we think of destroying property, destroying war machinery, as violent. <laughs> We're taking away their their ability to to be violent when when we destroy war war equipment. Uh, that's for, that's very interesting. Um, I noticed in the. In, by the way, before I forget, let me ask you: Where can people follow your work? Because I just don't want to forget this. We have got a lot more discussion here, but I want to ask you right now, as I think of it, where can people follow your work? Where can they buy your books? I've got a website, peacewriter.org. Uh, peacewriter.org. Peacewriter.org. One okay. word. Peacewriter.org. Um, and. Um, or they can just type in William T. Hathaway into Google, and they'll get most of it there, too. I use my middle initial T, William T. Hathaway, and okay, put my writing in. Um, in a promotion of your latest book uh, put out uh, by Eileen Proctor's international public relations firm, and I'm just quoting what she has written there. She says, the junction of Wall Street and the military corporate industrial complex has uh, come to a halt now. We can, we can do no longer sustain war, this corrupt rich man's hobby. 
on the home front, wars are making America into a third world, uh, into a third world country where millions are out of work, losing their homes, losing their savings, their pensions, their retirement security. We are losing our nation to lies about the necessity of war. Going, going, gone is our national treasury in 2001. A little more than a year, uh, in a little more than a year, the United States flew $12 billion in cash into Iraq. Much of it in $100 bills shrink wrapped and loaded into pallets that at least $9 billion of the cash had gone missing unaccounted for. Now, I remember hearing stories about this, but, you know, it wasn't talked about very much. It came out in the media very briefly. And so where did the nine, your hunch, where did the $9 million go? $9 billion, I'm sorry. It's now in Switzerland or Bahrain and in, in, invested in real estate there. And it's just, most of it was just stolen by these people, by the by this, the gov- so-called democratically elected government that we put in power by our puppets, and so they puppets saw that as the their as their uh, as a reward for being loyal to the U.S. or what? Or were they loyal to the U.S. even? Well, then they certainly not. They're just loyal to themselves. Mm-hmm. Very similar things occurred in Vietnam, uh, and and the the leaders of South Vietnam were then scapegoated as saying. Uh, well, it wasn't for these crooked politicians we could win. Another same same thing about Karzai, you know, in, in Afghanistan. Well, if it wasn't for him, uh, we'd we'd be doing okay. But it, it turned it. They're they're scapegoating them, but it would it's only be a crooked, dishonest individual who would act as as the puppet representative of an invading force in their country, mm-hmm. <laughs> and stand up and say, "Yeah, I'm the president. America put me in power, and and I'm the president of, of Afghanistan now." This guy Karzai was an employee. Uh, was a, worked for the for the oil company that wants to build that pipeline. Uh-huh. He was their guy. <laughs> he's their guy. Sure. Yeah, and so yeah. and he's a crook, of course. Yeah. Only a crook. Only crooks do that kind of stuff. Right. Well, it's uh, it's part of the co- the military industrial complex, I guess. It's part of the corporate military industrial complex yeah. that we've had various various guests on this show talk about um, uh, John Perkins, uh, Daniel Estulin, and, and several others. Um, well, so so all that money went missing, but you, uh, part of this other statement here, uh, we are losing our nation to lies about the necessity of war. Uh, you know, I'm thinking weapons of mass destruction. Whatever happened to those weapons of mass destruction that we never found in Iraq, for example? Yeah, they just weren't there. I think he would have he would have built them if he could, because he was he was also our guy. Mm-hmm. He would never have come to power without U.S. support. Um, yeah. There was a, a a memo about him from written by the CIA that well we know he's a thug but he's our thug mm-hmm. we picked him because he was the guy who'd be least likely to nationalize the oil industry there and would clamp down on on any on any leftist opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, getting back to Iran, I mean that's exactly what we did in Iran. We we destabilized Mossadegh and then brought in the Shah, who was our was our was our dictator. Mm-hmm. He, and he, he was served one of the most well, dictators in, in the world. Served, served BP and the uh, oil companies very well. Um, we uh, we've got about a minute before break, and then we want to have you come back for uh, for a continuation of discussion for another fifteen oh, minutes or so. Um, so Obama is in now, and, and so you know he's prosecuting, or I don't know if that's the right word. We're, we have the war in Afghanistan. And uh, there's stuff going on there, too. I mean, uh, I see here something about a suitcase of $3 billion in cash that have been openly moved into the Cabal airport. Perhaps we can talk about that as soon as we come back from break 
And then I want to talk about a couple of your other books and, and just uh, go into those a little bit if we can. So, okay, uh, we'll do it. So, all right, thank We're going to go to, to a commercial break, folks, but we'll be right back uh, with Professor Hathaway. Don't go away. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Briggis Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Briggis has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Briggis is also advancing its Goldfields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Briggis as your gold investment choice. Briggis is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I uh, need to just thank our sponsors for the second hour of this show. Uh, before we return to Pat, uh, Professor Hathaway, uh, our sponsors for the second hour, Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, who we'll be talking to in a few minutes, Richfield Ventures, who we'll also be talking to, Athabasca Uranium, Brigus Gold, uh, Everton Resources, Millrock Resources, and Golden Hope Mines. Well, Professor uh, Hathaway, we were talking before the break. Uh, we just started talking a little bit about the $3 billion of cash that went missing, or it was delivered through the Cabal Airport. Uh, the BBC reported uh, that the U.S. military had been given tens of millions of dollars to Afghanistan security firms who were then funneling this money to the warlords. I don't know how much you know about what's going on in Afghanistan, but I, would you care to comment on that? What, what happens? Do they, these, these uh, warlords get paid off to protect the turf, and, or what are they doing? Yeah, they get, they get paid off just, and they're paying, they're paying the, uh, the radical Muslims off in, in Iraq, too, to not, uh, to not attack. They're making some of them rich uh, to not attack us for a while. Oh, that's how it they works. They won't forever, just, but uh, at least until we make a decent exit from there. Uh, and now they're trying the same thing in, in Afghanistan to just to, to buy them off temporarily. And it's not, the thing is, the military doesn't mind doing that. It's not their money. <laughs> it's our money. <laughs> they yeah, isn't that interesting? It. It's our money. It's the people's money. Of course, it's money that is taxed or printed, more more accurately said, that, uh, you know, as I was saying earlier in the show about the gold connection, the inability to... Uh, with a gold standard, Nixon would have had to tell the American people uh, they, that they had to be that they actually had to pay for Vietnam. Now there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, that, that's holding our our printing presses in check. There's nothing that keeps the United States from printing endless amounts of money. I say nothing except that we do know that we're running into debt like never before, and that debt is becoming harder and harder to service. And I'm thinking here as you're talking about. It's not. It's not the, the military's money. It's the people's. It's you know. It's the money of the United States. It's the indebtedness of the United States that goes. This money that's printed goes to pay off these these thugs, if it were, or in Iraq the military, the militants. Um, and it's just a matter of time before the money runs out, or or if we can't pay them anymore, then what happens? Then it falls apart, I guess. Yeah, and and people are trying to. To make it fall apart sooner, that's, that's this first group I profile in Radical Peace. People are trying to, well, okay, if it has to fall apart, let's make it really fall apart as soon as possible. Uh, yeah. But the drawback to that is that those, that's pretty aggressive and pretty negative and, and polarizes the side to create a lot of pain along the way. Sure. But there's another peace group I profile in the book that takes a much more positive approach to this problem. Uh, they've revised the ancient peacekeeping techniques of the Vedic civilization in India and are using those now to reduce violence in society. It's quite amazing uh, the results they've got. The basic principles that when large numbers of people practice transcendental meditation together, peace occurs automatically. Interesting. Not just for those people meditating, but the whole society becomes peaceful through them. 
Interesting. What well, was there something you know physiologically? Uh, can you explain that medically or anything? I mean, do you have any sense of why yeah. that works? Well, there's 23 studies that have been published in, in academic journals that, that showed that large groups of meditators reduce violence and improve the quality of life in the whole surrounding area. Uh, and the effects on war in these studies are particularly remarkable. When these large groups of meditators are are doing their long meditations. Terrorism and casualties dropped by 70% in, in nearby wars, and the level of fighting there dropped by 50%. Mm. But after, after, the, after those assemblies ended, the, the figures returned to their previous level. The violence picked up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, yeah, it works from the level of collective consciousness, where, mm-hmm. where all our minds are linked. Mm-hmm. Our individual minds really aren't fundamentally separated, but they share a deeper dimension in common. And we all send our mental energy through this field of consciousness that connects us and we're all continually transmitting and receiving these influences. You can really feel that, like in New York City, where you are. Mm-hmm. We're in a we're in a pool there. Our minds are are not are not separate. Really, we're always being influenced by by the thought waves of people around us. Sure, sure. And that's often loaded with fear and and, and frustration and anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the medi- the expert meditators can counteract that because if those build up to a certain point, that negativity goes up to a certain point, then, then it just erupts into, mm-hmm. into crime, into war, into mm-hmm. accidents, hostility. Um, mm-hmm. But Interesting. this technique brings their thinking mind to, to, of the meditators to this deeper dimension that connects us. They can think from that level where all our minds are joined, and from there their thoughts have great power. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they all... You- yeah, you've talked about meditation and you know how important that is. And I guess you, you, as I mentioned earlier, you were a student of Eastern religions, I believe, at Columbia mm-hmm. University. Yeah, yeah. It's is that where you got a, a sort of a sense of this of the importance of meditation? Actually, no. It was before that. It was when I left the special forces. I was totally stressed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, really suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, and started doing transcendental meditation, and it was amazing. It was amazing what it did. What it uh, did to your to your body, to your mind. Yeah, to mind and clearing out my psychology, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and my my wife helped a lot too. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, but the, you the had you have a loving, caring wife. Patient. Patient. <laughs> patient. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank uh, thank God for her. So. I just wanted to mention that we had, uh, you know, again, from Eileen Proctor talking about here, um, you know, she says, this is Orwell's world, and Americans are now living in it. And she points out that um, the current reports indicate that Congress is preparing to attach a $10 billion state education fund to a $33 billion bill to keep the war going. So it seems as though, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of votes for war. Uh, you know, and so they tack on a, a you know an education bill, and I'm not a big spender. I mean, I'm not philosophically not interested in spending a lot of money from you know high-level governments. I'd like to see things done more locally. That's my philosophy. But, but you know, who's who's behind this? Where where is this demand for war? Where is it coming from? Do you think? I think some of it does come from from our, our psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, what what I don't think it comes from is our human nature. There's a lot of people out there who will, will say wars are just, uh, we're just right. warlike people. We're just, human beings are warlike. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of propaganda that, uh, and they claim it's because of the, uh, our genes and everything. Mm-hmm. The wars, we've always had wars. 
But it mm-hmm. turns out that it's, that's only the history. Under, patri- under the patriarchal civilization, that's true. But the early matriarchal civilizations in southeastern Europe had, had centuries of peace. Mm. And the many of the Pacific Islands were, were just unknown. They had matriarchal societies there. Mm. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, uh, and, but then they say, well, they cite, the, the people say war is, is part of our genes, say that chimpanzees make war on other, on other chimpanzees, and they, uh, and they are closest genetic relatives, so we have these war genes in us. But it turns out that, and that, that this is a whole killer ape theory that received enormous amounts of media attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, yeah, that's just the way we are, folks. There's always going to be these wars. There's always going to be somebody coming along and, and trying to take over the world, so we've got to get there first. Uh, but with the studies with the chimps, they found out that it was only, that only the chimps whose territory was shrinking, whose whose survival was threatened, uh-huh. then they made war because they were desperate for, for more food. Their food sources were drying up. Mm-hmm. Then they would attack another, another group of chimps and, and kill some of them and take their, take their, their, their food. Mm-hmm. Uh, ordinarily, they didn't do that, though. Well, that's hardly the situation the United States is in, um, if you want to apply that to, uh, to human beings. I mean, we were in Vietnam, I think, uh, you know, why was a question for young people to ask, and 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 young people were asking the question. Now, are they, they don't seem to be so active right now. Of course, we don't have a draft in the U.S. right now. What do you think would happen if they put in a draft and started drafting uh, young young people into the into the service again? That's called democracy, right? <laughs> That's called you know. The, the, I think it would, I would be for it actually, because I, the military would fall apart at that point. You would be like in favor of a draft because it would. Uh, because people would really object to it. Yeah, because th- then they w- we would have open rebellion. Now it's just the people who are so desperate for, for some sort of, of security, for some sort of job, and there are yeah. so many of those people now that they're willing to, uh, to become, uh, become soldiers. But yeah. patriotism is so deeply ingrained in us. Uh, yeah, that's, that's very interesting because it seems to me that that is the case, that who who is going in and who's enlisting these days because it's a quote-unquote voluntary army that Nixon put in place, I guess, during those years. It's stayed in place since then. And how voluntary is it, I guess, is a question. Yeah, if you don't have, if that's the best you can, you know, if, if you don't have really real chances in life, that it's not voluntary. You might be more like those chimpanzees that uh, that had to fight for their food and their turf and they became aggressive, I suppose. Yeah, really, really. Uh, but uh, patriotism is really a, a means of control that uh, that doesn't. Uh, it makes us identify our country with 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 our with the founding fathers, with our own father, with the heavenly father. This great pa- patriarchal hierarchy. Uh, yeah. We get an emotional bond into our country. It, it, it exploits the love we have for our parents. Mm-hmm. little children and, and turns it into a love of country very uh, interesting we only have about a minute left and there's so many you've written so many other so many books uh... well quite a few anyway four or five at least right mm-hmm. yeah, could, could you just yeah. mention uh... real quickly uh... another book or two that people should focus on perhaps that, that uh... You know, that, that are snow, on this topic that you've written my my last novel summer snow is a love story about an, uh, an american warrior in, in the terror war Who's, who falls in love with a Sufi Muslim over there? Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, and she, so, so he's over there fighting fighting the terrorists, uh, and he falls in love with, with this local woman, uh, and she teaches him about Sufism, uh, and about about those beliefs, the, the peace, 
peaceful side of Islam. There's a deep peaceful side of Islam that we mm-hmm. don't really know about over here. Well, we don't. We're not taught about that too much here, yeah, are we? Yeah. And she teaches him in some, some of those things, and it changes him. It changes his whole outlook on life. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that's that's that story set set amid the war, set amid this current war. Okay. And again, the website um, that they can go to for your website is what again? PeaceWriter.org. PeaceWriter.org. Before we let you go, I just want to mention one thing. There's Rick Mayberry. You may not know him. He's a newsletter writer. He talks about how when soldiers, uh, you know, take the oath of their their positions when they swear to uphold, they swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States, not, uh, you know, the president's orders. And Mayberry is suggesting that among some high-ranking military officers, there are some very deep thoughts, and I don't think it applies just to Obama, probably to Bush as well, some very deep reservations that, you know, these, these uh, officers at higher levels, uh, you know, understand or they're, they, you know, they pay attention when they take their oath of office, that they are to uphold the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution being bigger than the president. Do you have any thoughts about that? Is there any possibility that there's some things going on within the military that, that could change things? You know, that would be wonderful if, if, if we had more people within the military actually stand up and say, hey, this is wrong, and we're not, we, ain't, we ain't doing it no more. <laughs> right. Un, un, you know, I mean, we accuse the Nazis of, of being like that in World War II, but of course we would never be like that. <laughs> no, not us. No. Huh? Not That's us, no. <laughs> well, Professor Hathaway, I thank you for coming on my show. We are out of time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I had a whole bunch more questions. Maybe we can have you on again sometime. Thank you for your encouraging work, and, and all the best to you. Thank you for, for the insights on, on, the, on the money aspects. It had something I really hadn't grappled with before, but I'm going to think more about that, and I appreciate it. Yeah, maybe it. we can talk about that some more, either on, either on the radio or, or, uh, or you and I. Let's do it. Okay, Next take day. care. Bye. All the best. Well, folks, don't go away, because we're going to be coming right back with Scott Moore. Uh, he is the president and CEO of Dasha Capital. He'll be right back with us in just a minute. Don't go away. Community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. 
Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.ca for further information. Solidan Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project, and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit at www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. My apologies, folks. I had uh, announced the wrong company. Uh, the next segment uh, is a pre-recorded segment with Richfield Ventures, uh, one of the hottest uh, companies and recommendations on my list. So I'm going to turn it back to the engineers now for the pre-record with Richfield Ventures. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. As Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff said a few weeks back, the U.S. is already a bankrupt nation. Our country has carried out its financial affairs in a most irresponsible manner. To pay for reckless spending and an unthinkable amount of military spending, our government has printed out more and more paper. 
and to bail out large corporations as well. To fund this enormous expenditure, the U.S. has gone into debt. Up until recently, foreigners have been happy to buy that debt, and the Fed has carried out an excessively easy monetary policy for several decades now that has encouraged people to live beyond their means and to make it easy to fund that debt. The government has issued lots of money. The Federal Reserve has issued lots of money for, uh, to make sure the government can fund that debt. Well, increasingly, our foreigners, our foreign friends, have said that they will not continue to keep buying U.S. dollar debt, which has led Chairman Bernanke to to run the monetary printing presses even faster, and that is leading to the demise of the world's reserve currency, the U.S. dollar. But gold, on the other hand, continues to rise in value. It cannot be destroyed. Unlike paper, gold has intrinsic value. It is the great preserver of wealth when countries debase their currencies like the U.S. is now doing. That is why I believe we are in the bull market of a lifetime for gold and gold mining shares. The gold shares are doing extremely well for us now, as they have since 2002. And one of the best performers of late in uh, on my in my newsletter, as well as one of the best performing uh, companies uh, sponsors to this show, is Richfield Ventures, which is a as I mentioned, it's, it was actually on our show back on August uh, 24th. At that time, uh, Richfield's shares were trading at um, oh, I think around a dollar and a half or so, if I remember right. Now they're pushing $3 a share. Uh, Richfield recently uh, announced a 7.5 million unit financing at $1.95, uh, raising $14.6 million. And very often, normally, uh, when a share issuance like that is, is announced, the share price goes down. But actually, it's gone up very dramatically, as I mentioned, almost $3 a share. Richfield Ventures trades on the Toronto Venture Exchange, and uh, it's got uh, 28.3 million shares out before that, another 7.5 million shares coming out in the new issuance. And uh, it closed or recently trading at around $2.80. Well, uh, I want to welcome uh, back with us again for the second time. Uh, we have the president of Richfield Ventures. That's Peter Bernier. Bernier. Uh, he's the founder, president, and CEO, and uh, Dr. Dirk Templeton Clute. Uh, he is the company's geologist. Welcome, both of you, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. How are you doing, Jay? Good to talk to you again. Well, hey. great. Hi, Dirk. And, you know, it's really great to talk to you, especially when it's such a happy story. Uh, and you guys are doing very, very well. You've had a number of great drill results. Um, our numbers are growing in the radio show very rapidly, so I'm, I'm thinking there's probably a lot of people that weren't here when you were on the first time. So could you give our listeners a little bit of a background on the, your, uh, your, your flagship property, which is the Blackwater Gold Project in British Columbia? Tell us a little bit about the history of this. I think there was some initial preliminary economics done by somebody uh, previous to you having the property. If you could just give our listeners some background as to what what uh, the number of ounces that you think may be there based on the past, and just go with it and tell us what you've, you know, just give us a background. Give the new people a background on your company. Sure, Jay. It's Dirk here. Um, the uh, the property is west of Quinell, British Columbia, about in the center of British Columbia. Uh, we drive to the property on a, on a, a logging highway. It takes us about two hours from Vanderhoof. We're about 100 kilometers south of Vanderhoof. Um, the, the property was discovered in 1973 uh, in the, the central uh, plateau area of, of British Columbia uh, and was worked by mainly by Grangus Exploration uh, in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. 
uh, and they ended up doing a, a quite a fair amount of uh, groundwork and also drilling. Uh, but for one reason or another, they lost interest in the property in the mid-90s. Uh, it was optioned by another company uh, who drilled it, and then, so, uh, then we, uh, Richfield, optioned the ground from, uh, from the previous operators uh, last March, March 2009. And the breakthrough move was optioning the two, two adjoining properties because the deposit actually straddles the property boundary. The property is in a highly solidified, uh, modest-sized uh, volcanic pile. Modest, the, the pile is modest-sized, but the mineralization is a very large system, uh, uh, quite extensive and uh, very strong-looking, uh, at least 800 meters uh, wide as far as we know at the moment, and open, and at least six or 700 meters uh, north-south, and again, uh, open, uh, also open to depth. Uh, so altogether, at the moment, uh, the, the drilling on the property amounts to a total of about 15 or 20 kilometers. Uh, so really, we've only just scratched the surface. Compare that to uh, the 200 kilometers worth of drilling that would be needed to to find a resource, we're really only done about 10% of the work to find out how much is actually there and already is looking amazing. Well, uh, so that's really, in a nutshell, where the property is at. And okay. we're, we're fully funded to drill the property off now. We, we have, uh, are just developing a 50,000-meter drill program. Initially, we had 25,000 meters planned, but now we're going to bump it to a 50,000-meter drill program. Um, and we've got permitting in place for two and a half years. And with our warrants and fully diluted, we will have approximately $36 million in the bank. Wow. That's really great for a junior, uh, junior exploration company like you. Now, I just want to get back to the dimensions of this, uh, of this target, of this mineralized target. Uh, I know that in the past there was, there was some work done, uh, some at least early economic uh, work, perhaps a, a back of the envelope, not a, not a feasibility study for sure, but maybe uh, some scoping work or whatever terminology uh, best describes it. But as I understand it, there was an estimate of some um, oh, four, and a, four and a quarter million ounces, I believe, and uh, maybe an operating cost uh, for an open pit mine there of $500 uh, an ounce. Um, but I'd like to ask you, uh, Dirk, perhaps you can, uh, you can tell us, was uh, that four four and a quarter million ounces, was that from what portion of this property? Is that the portion that you guys are drilling right now and confirming past numbers or, or what? Uh, that, that's correct, Jay. The, uh, that estimate is uh, really just a back-of-the-envelope estimate. I don't think you want to give anybody the impression that this is a, a rigorously uh, calculated resource, but mm -hmm. it's certainly what, what LOM thought was possible. Mm -hmm. And we are drilling that, uh, that possible area off and getting very encouraging results so far. Mm -hmm. uh, we're drilling on a 50-meter spacing, uh, basically stepping right across there uh, to, to try and confirm and to uh, perhaps improve those numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, that is, uh, that is quite exciting. If what I'm understanding you to say, Dirk, is that with maybe 10 or 10% of the prospective uh, target drilled uh, in that area, 
you're going to continue infill drilling, no doubt, to comply with 43101 requirements so that you can, with a high level of confidence, say how many ounces you have. Uh, what, if I'm hearing what you're saying, there there is a reasonably good chance that you could see that four and a quarter million ounces from in that area, and possibly more, uh, possibly less. I think we have to say, in all fairness, but nonetheless, it looks like you have the potential, depi- depending on how you define world class, to outline a world class deposit here. Is that is that stretching it? Uh, I think that's a fair that's a fair statement, uh, with, especially with the caveat, you know, that these numbers can go. Uh, down as well as up, mm-hmm. um, uh, but it's, uh, the thing I would emphasize is that it's large at the moment, it's a very strong looking system, and it is uh, open. It's open uh, basically on all sides and at the bottom, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the drilling we're doing uh, is uh, defining some of these open areas, so uh, yeah, it's, it's looking very positive. With respect to the economics of, of, uh, of mining, of course, comes this whole issue of, of, uh, strip, uh, of the strip ratio. Uh, do you know enough about the ge- geometry of the deposit yet to say or to have a sense of whether it would be a high or low strip ratio? Uh, the mineralization starts essentially at the bedrock uh, uh, surface. So mm-hmm. we have about, let's say, 10 meters of overburden, glacial till mainly, Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, the, the mineralization essentially starts at the bedrock surface. So uh, uh, this is a very uh, simple open pit type situation. Uh, we can see an open pit that might be 250 meters deep and uh, say 800 meters in diameter or something like that. And if you uh, 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 and the strip ratio would be very very low, basically one to one. Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly those are issues to keep in mind. What about uh, infrastructure up there? You are in a fairly remote area, are you not? Uh, not really. We're 100 kilometers by air from the nearest town, and we've got. It takes about two hours to drive there. We've got an all-season uh, logging road there that they keep up, and then our road is 17 kilometers off that logging road, and we've upgraded it to. Um, an all-winter road now, and it's just as wide as the uh, logging road. Mm-hmm. And we can get low beds all the way into our camp now and fuel trucks and everything else. We've just um, finished uh, building a large uh, 40-man camp in the area. We've got a new core shacks built, and we've got two drills on the property, and we can go all winter long, unlike a lot of these juniors that have to stop drilling in the winter time. We're going to have news coming all winter long, and that's going to be a big plus for us this year. So there won't be no downturn in our news flow. Okay. What about electricity um, power? Is there a power available? Will that be a big issue somewhere down the road? Because uh, investors need to realize that all of that gets sort of factored into the to the share price of these of these projects as they're evolving. But what about the issue of power? Yeah, we can uh, get power. The nearest power, obviously, by the road is 150 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Um, if we, uh, you know, can cut some corners, we can probably get a power line in approximately 130 kilometers in a straight line. Uh, we have another uh, company in the area that, that may have a molly or may not have a molly mine uh, nearby, so we may piggyback with them to get power in when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Um, but We'll, um, with the resource that we're talking about and the potential of our property, 
I don't think uh, it would be an issue, and I do believe that the British Columbia government would help us in, in putting that power line in. Mm-hmm. Well, we're certainly looking uh, at the potential for something very large, and then, of course, that, that uh, can justify the capital expenditure that might be required. It might, might seem relatively small um, compared to the size of the deposit and the revenues you, that could be taken out of there at some time in the future, potentially. Well, um, the, thing, the thing is, too, this is open pitable, so we don't have the big expense of going underground. Of course, of course. But, uh, of course, uh, there would be an expense if you're moving a lot of rock. What sort of grade are, are, are you anticipating here and, um, based on what you're getting now and, and uh, on the previous work? Uh, uh, Jay, we, we, we don't uh, have a well-calculated resource, as I've already said. Yes. And we don't have a really uh, sound number for an average grade. Mm-hmm. But, but if you... Uh, you know, we're getting intersections like uh, 280 meters of 1.4 grams, which we just released. Yeah. Uh, we uh, released at the end of last season an intersection of 329 meters, averaging at 1.25 grams. Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning of this year, we averaged three. We released uh, a whole uh, 267 meters of 1.57 grams. So these are. Uh, we're thinking maybe a, a reasonable kind of average that people could wrap their heads around, and, and this is a total guess, but you, you've heard some of the numbers already. Sure. Um, the, 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 we might see a, a gram per ton. Sure, sure. Well, there are, uh, certainly with these, with these prices, there's lots of money to be made in some projects with a gram per ton, that's for sure. Um, we have some on our list that are doing just fine. Uh, Allied Nevada, for example, I think might be right at around a gram a ton. So um, I think the context here for for that number, Jay, uh, that I like to think about is that the world reserve for some of the large uh, mining com- gold mining companies, the world reserve, and I won't mention the names particularly, but yeah. is is under a gram. It's like three quarters of a gram. Yeah. The world reserve for several large gold companies. Uh-huh. Uh, so a gram is a is a very uh, reasonable number to think of as an economic target. Yeah, certainly when you have enough ounces and um, you know other other factors come into play as well. Of course, um, what it, what do you think the major risks are for people that come into this share into these shares now? Of course, we've seen a nice run up. I mean, we've almost doubled it since we put it in our newsletter. What what are the major risks? I don't know if either of you gentlemen would care to to just. Maybe well, what you think that one of the major risks always in in the marketplace is the price of gold. Sure, uh, that that'll influence our stock quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But there's a, 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 most analysts are predicting gold to uh, continue on an upward trend. Mm-hmm. So as long as that keeps happening, I think our stock price will stay very strong. Um, you know, as long as um, yeah, gold keeps going up, I think that's one of the, the major risks that we have. I can't really foresee any other problems right now, especially just because of our infrastructure and everything else, mm-hmm. and the government uh, being the way they are. Um, you know, they just opened the Mount Milligan project uh, about 200 kilometers north of us. Um, we are getting, um, you know, some, some key guys on management side of the fence here uh, this week, so we're going to be announcing that. And things are just uh, looking really good for us right now, and I don't foresee right now any any problems. Yeah. Well, of course, um, 
that, as you say, the, the metals prices, the financial markets uh, would think uh, if they if they tank like they did, but you know they bounced back. And and here's the thing about gold is doing extremely well, much better than than the other base metals, the other uh, even better than energy. As I like to point out to my listeners and my subscribers, that the real price of gold has risen dramatically since the Lehman Brothers failure in terms of what trading an ounce of gold for all other materials, it seems, in most cases. But I uh, just want to ask you before we say goodbye, what your website again, so people can continue to follow your progress. Our website is richfieldventures.ca. richfieldventures.ca. Well, thank you. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we, before we conclude our conversation? I think the thing, uh, one thing that listeners would be interested in, Jay, is uh, we're in a central part of British Columbia that is uh, economically depressed because of the uh, downturn in the logging industry, uh, but mm-hmm. because of the uh, beetle, beetle, uh, pine beetle kill area. So this is an area where uh, many uh, people and agencies have an interest in spurring economic development, including especially mining. Uh, so. Uh, not only are we in in a nice situation physically, but politically, I think this is an area where people want things to happen. This is not an area where there's a lot of pristine uh, topography that is going to uh, cause uh, maybe uh, environmental concerns or expensive environmental concerns. And these are positives for our uh, for our project. Indeed. It certainly does seem to be a great story, one that's taking shape very nicely. Very pleased to have winning companies as sponsors to this show and in my newsletter. So I want to thank both of you gentlemen for the fine work you're doing, uh, Peter Bernier and uh, Dr. Dirk Templeton-Klute. Uh, thank you again. And, uh, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. But don't go away because next up we'll be talking to another sponsor of this show, that being Dasha Capital. It's a very unique company in the rare earth sector. You know, I really prefer gold, and I'm not a big rare earths guy, but Dasha Capital offers a unique way to invest in rare earths without taking the risks that are inherent in the mining of those metals, uh, which are really a niche, they're really niche markets that uh, are much different than, than investing in gold mining companies. So don't go away. We'll be right back uh, with uh, Dasha Capital. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. 
Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Box mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Box, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Um, really pleased to have with me Patrick Wong. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Dasha Capital, uh, Inc., and it's a very, very exciting story, very interesting story. We did talk to Scott Moore earlier in this season. Uh, Dasha is a uh, is a sponsor to the show, and we're grateful to the company for that. But we're also grateful that they are here to tell us uh, what I think is a very interesting story. And I had the opportunity to talk with Patrick a little bit before we went on on the air because of the previous pre-recorded uh, session. So, uh, welcome, Patrick, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. Thanks very much for having me. It's really great to have you, and I, I, you know, I sort of really enjoyed our discussion before uh, we went live here. Just uh, mentioned that Dasha Capital trades uh, on the Venture Exchange uh, under the symbol DAC, and it's selling around thirty-seven, thirty-eight cents Canadian these days. Uh, what's really interesting about it, this is an ETF kind of a structure that uh, that invests in uh, industrial metals, and to me, that's important because I can tell you that you, you know, each of these metals have their own unique. Uh, they're unique markets. They're all different, and the learning curve is there. You've got to spend a lot of time. I don't want to own the mining companies in the industrial metals uh, space because I find them t- so risky. Uh, the markets are so tiny, and yet um, Patrick Wong, who came up with this uh, concept, I believe has found something that could make investors who buy at these levels could make them an awful lot of money. And so let's explore, uh, Patrick, uh, what you are doing now. You have selected... Uh, various metals. Do you want to just tell our listeners uh, very quickly what some of your key metals are, the ones that that um, that, that you have in your portfolio, and then w- the size of the markets, and then you know what they are used for? Sure, sure, I'd be glad to. Yeah, it's, no, it's uh, basically when we went out and just tried to decide what our portfolio is going to look like, we needed to use an investment methodology, and the one that we uh, we employ is one that looks for pinch points, uh, pieces of a, uh, the value chain that are a very small component, but are strategic. They're indispensable, and they're not substitutable. And so in our particular inventory, we focused on heavy rare earths because they fit that bill. So we have some dysprosium oxide. 
We've got some ferrodysprosium, some terbium, all these eums. We've got yttrium and uh, gadolinium, uh, lutetium. And it's interesting, uh, not a lot of people know this, but uh, these, these elements are used in various products. Everything from your BlackBerry to uh, LCD screens, hybrid cars, and all of these represent a very small portion of their, their production cost. So, for example, terbium, europium, yttrium, all used in, in fluorescent lighting and energy-saving lighting. And they're also used in backlighting for LCD screens and your BlackBerry screen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, in other words, because they're such a small part of the overall cost of these products, uh, the elasticity of demand, that is, if the price goes up sharply for these, for these metals, it's not, going to, it's not going to mean that the, that the demand goes away or that these, that, is that right? That's very true. You know, and also, the additional benefit of this portfolio is that it's a diversified portfolio. So there is a large number of uses for each of these products, and on top of it, you get the additional uh, product diversification. Mm-hmm. And in, I'll give you an example. Dysprosium is used in doping the hybrid car magnets so that they maintain their, uh, their performance in high-temperature environments in, in, mm-hmm. in an engine, for example. Well, only 100 grams is needed for each hybrid engine. That 100 grams is worth about $27 on a $40,000 car. Yeah, it's not. If you don't have that, you don't have a car. It doesn't matter at all, does it? So, uh, so in other words, uh, the price can go to the moon. Now, let's talk about the supply of some of these metals. The supply is very limited, as I understand. Yeah, it's, what's interesting is that it's a, uh, the term rare earth is a bit of a misnomer because it's actually not that rare, but what makes it difficult is the processing and, and mining of it because all 15 elements come at once. None of these elements will be on a stand, exist on a standalone basis. So you've, you've got to find the mineral that holds the rare earths, and then on top of it you have to separate all of them into its individual elements and at a high enough purity that can be used by customers. Oh. Okay, so uh, I'm looking at your, your latest uh, public statement here. It shows the, uh, the value of about $0.41 cents per share of these metals. The stock uh, at the time was selling at $0.33, cents, and we mentioned it's about $0.38. Cents. What's the intrinsic value or the net asset value now? Is it close to that $0.38 cent price? Uh, it's actually closer to $0.41, cents now. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so about uh, 28% on our inventories. Uh, mm-hmm. When we started marketing this uh, back in uh, in the spring, uh, pretty much every one of the uh, things that we said has, has sort of come true. Uh, heavy rare earth metal prices have increased in value. Um, quotas uh, have dropped. And uh, what we're seeing today is an amazing example of what could actually happen. Uh, I'll give you an example with the, what's happened with the light rare earths. These are two elements that we don't currently own, but China's policy changed things. Uh-huh. And lanthanum and cerium are up 500%, over 500% in the last two months oh. since they announced this. Yet it only affected product prices by 5%. Oh, interesting. They were easily passed right through. And the end buyer, which is oil and gas refineries that use these FCC catalysts to split it, uh, oil into the different products, they easily take that. They've got to have it, in other words. Um, let's talk about some of these specific metals, just just to get an idea of maybe they're too diverse. But but you know, as I'm thinking now, you're saying that the diversification is on both sides of the equation. Essentially, you have a diversified group of buyers, you know, different kinds of buyers, different applications. So that provides some downside protection, I would think. 
uh, and uh, and you have a diversified portfolio with lots of different different metals in them. Uh, disposium, for example, what is it used for? Disposium is a, is a highly magnetic material. It's actually used in doping, for example, of hybrid car engines. Oh, you just mentioned that, right? Yeah, it's also used in nuclear reactors because it's a good neutron absorber. Um, it, it's easy to get excited about a lot of these uses because when you see what they're used in and, and that you're surrounded by all these things, it's easy to become passionate about it because it's fascinating. Yeah, because most people don't know, including me. What about uh, ferrodisposium? Ferrodisposium used in the same way. It's same way. Because okay. it's already mixed with iron, it's got more of an alloy, and so that's used in more of the magnetic applications. What about uh, yttrium? Yttrium is used as the, uh, as the host lattice element for LCD screens, where it actually is doped with other things like europium and terbium to give you the colors blue and red. And terbium used for anything else? Or green there... and red, sorry. Uh, terbium, is also, yeah, terbium is actually used in uh, turfanol D, which is uh, uh, something that's used by the military uh, for sonar boards. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so terbium actually has a very specific military use that's very important. And uh, terbium also resonates at a certain frequency that makes it applicable to some other technologies. It's very interesting. Um, you got another one here that uh, you know some of these things I've hardly heard of, and yet they're they're so important in terms of modern day technologies. What about? Uh, let's see if I can pronounce this. Europium. Europium oxide. It's it's used in the phosphor industry as well, and it gives you the color red. Uh-huh. So that, in combination with yttrium, produces a uh, these red phosphors. Okay, notice that you have some metals that you're actually holding in China, you, uh, europium being one of them, yttrium being another. Uh, are you concerned about the safety of your, of your, um, of your property there? No, we've actually uh, spent a lot of time in uh, locating the right places. Uh, as uh, a rule, we've, uh, we only store in warehouses that are LME approved. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one that we have in Shanghai, we've uh, actually done a lot of do this. We've visited it. And uh, the reason why we have some product in China is that it, it, most of the volume, most of the trade still happens in China. So when we capitalize a business, we actually move some of the um, capital over and convert it into RMB and it allows us to hold some material there and take advantage of any trading fluctuations you see there. Okay. You had mentioned before we went on the air, maybe you even said it since we've been on the air, about a pinch point. How does management decide which metals to buy? You're looking for those that have a pinch point. That is where the supply cannot be there to meet uh, an, an inevitable demand, which then could send the prices to the moon, I guess. That's right. Well, it's a combination of a couple things that would cause the price uh, increase, and that is that the, the industry itself works on a just-in-time basis and doesn't have a lot of inventory. And in any industry, especially ones that were strategic inputs uh, are concerned, you need to have this buffering uh, inventory to, to help you through changes between demand and supply. Now, when we went out and looked at uh, you know, what, what sort of metals to buy, we looked for things that were supply-side constrained, and that, w- that exists in the heavy rare earths. So, for example, terbium, in the richest deposit coming out of southern ionic clays in China, where China produces 97% of all heavy rare earths in the world, 97%. The amount of terbium in the richest deposits is only about 1.3%. Uh-huh. So for every shovelful you take out of the ground, only less than a thimbleful is what you can actually use for this particular one. 
Mm. So you can ramp up. You can try to ramp up production as much as you can as you want. You won't be able to. You won't be get there. So, but we're not worried about the mining risks. That's what's good about your company. We can just simply buy the shares and we own the underlying metals. We're out of time, unfortunately. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we're going to just. Uh, we got a couple of minutes left with Roger Wiegand yet. Roger, you there? Roger's here. Okay, Roger. If you want to, we had a spike up in the gold price today. You want to just comment on it very briefly? Well. Reserve had a meeting today to ease monetary policy. They say they're going to ease it more and they're not going to expand their securities, which is silly. Uh, they've been expanding their securities for who knows how long. Uh, immediately, the market did not like it. Stocks went down, gold went up. Gold went as high as 1292.40 today on December futures. Silver went up to $21.11. Uh, the uh, Swiss franc which is another run for security and safety, is now over a dollar. It's, it's, it's one for one, and now it's 10042, up nine-tenths of one percent. Canadian dollars up. Oddly, the euro went up two points as well. U.S. dollar now is 80 and a half, and the bonds are up on fear and safety too, another two points. So uh, we've got a topping, uh, topping out event coming here on gold and silver, but... Uh, I don't think it's going to amount to a hill of beans, really. Uh, and a topping out in the equity markets, possibly now? Yes, I think uh, either tomorrow or Wednesday, that's it. Okay, Roger. I uh, Unfortunately, we're just about out of time here. I want to mention to my listeners that next week we're going to have Ian Gordon on. And I'd like to ask you, uh, Ian is a deflationist. He's absolutely convinced inevitably we're heading into a deflationary depression a la the 1930s or worse. So those of you who disagree with Ian... Would you please send in questions for Ian? Challenge him a little bit. I'm, I'm wanting you to challenge my good buddy Ian Gordon. You can send in your questions to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, plural, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. So, uh, you know, t- challenge Ian, and if you believe that inflation is inevitable, tell him why, and let him tell you why he doesn't agree. I can tell you he's going to disagree with you if you're an inflationist. I can bet my bottom dollar on that. Well, that's all the time, basically all the time we have. Roger, I'm sorry, we want to get you back so we can talk to you some more, maybe have you on the first part of the show so we don't squeeze your time so much. Anyway, I want to thank each of you for listening again. I want to thank our sponsors. I want to thank uh, the people that make this show logistically possible, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump. Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. All of, all of those folks make it really make this show possible. And I want to thank again to each of you for listening and making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Till next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that